0: Hey, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Coast Range Radio, a radio program of the Coast Range Association. My name is Andrew. Um, Thanks for tuning in on your local community station. We really appreciate those uh, local stations and their support of the radio program. Um, If you're listening on the podcast, uh, check and see what your your station is in your, your town. There's some great other programming and they provide a valuable resource. I want to hear from you and hear what you think of the show. Uh, folks should uh, send us an email at Andrew at org and let, let us know what you like and what you're thinking about other uh, the different guests, the, the things we're talking about on the show. So I'm really excited today. This is an interesting and unique program. Um, we're uh, doing a two-part series focusing on land ownership, rural landscapes, and the Green New Deal. And today we have... Um, a really unique guest uh, for Coast Range Radio. He's an assistant professor at George Mason University in Fairfax County, Virginia, who focuses on environmental justice, food and agriculture, sustainability, conservation science, and policy. He's a human geographer whose work fo- focuses on environmental injustice, particularly issues surrounding food, agriculture, and land use. His current research examines the environmental justice in- implications of conservation easements, an increasingly common form of publicly sub- subsidized private land conservation. He is also developing a long-term project on land ownership in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Welcome, Levi Van Sant.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Hey, yeah, we it's awesome that you're taking the time to talk with us here on Coast Range Radio. I reached out to you Um a little while ago, your um, your work, and uh, we found out about your work through a, an article you wrote in Descent titled Land Reform in the Green New Deal. And, uh, you know, that piece was uh, very informative to some of the work that the Coast Range Association has done um, regarding uh, industrial forest, Wall Street ownership, and uh, land reform in Western Oregon. And uh, that recently released proposal um, really, you know, Drew a, a lot from this article you wrote in dissent. So I just, you know, I sent you an email. I said, hey, we really appreciated this work. It's some of the only uh, writing uh, that's uh, available um, on this subject. And it, and it was uh, very informative. We learned a whole lot. So I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come and kind of dive a little deeper into this subject matter um, land ownership, land reform, these types of things um rural uh, ag and uh issues and so yeah thank you so much for being here on Coast Strange Radio
1: Thanks yeah it's uh, I'm glad to hear that y'all found that article useful you know a lot of times you write things and they uh you know you never hear anything about them <laughs> so it's great right? to hear that y'all, that y'all found that useful and um uh, reaching a broader audience you know a lot of times as academics we uh are in our sort of small small circles so it's good to good to break out of that. So thanks for reaching out to me. Yeah.
0: Did you get some uh, responses to that dissent article? Or did you get? I did. Yeah. It's
1: one of the things that I've written that had a, a broader circulation, you know, than some of the more traditional academic things that have a, a narrower uh, reach, smaller reach. This one, uh, you know, and that was one of the reasons I was excited about it because dissent does have a a broader audience. So, but it does seem like it resonated with uh, a fair amount of folks. And um, I was glad to hear that and look forward to, you know, keeping these conversations going.
0: Great. Well, uh, to kind of just jump right in to, to learning a little bit about your research in this work, um, you know, what originally got you interested in researching and writing on land ownership and environmental justice issues? And uh, yeah, what's what were some of those personal experiences that maybe inspired this this uh, work?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's so many, um, <laughs> so many things that led me to where I am. Um, but I do, you know, remember from a young age, I grew up in a you know, on a dirt road in rural Georgia. So I, you know, remember from a young age wanting to understand change in the countryside. Um, it was. It seemed like a a kind of dynamic time. I think that's probably the case for everybody <laughs> of every generation. Yeah. But I mean, I remember you know, as a kid, when we would drive into town, we passed a, a bunch of peach fields on the way into town, but. Um, you know, probably I was maybe around ten or twelve years old, and uh, all the peach farmers in our area just decided they they got out of peaches. You know, it had been a couple of bad years, and then there was a late frost, and the, the kind of writing was on the wall, and so they decided to get out get out of of peaches. And uh, you know, I just remember driving past these fields with um, where they had pulled up peach trees you know, hundreds of acres of peach trees just, you know, with the root balls sticking up in the air. Yeah. Um, And so it was a really dramatic, that's one really kind of dramatic thing that that sticks with me. But yeah, you know, I wanted to have a better understanding of why things like that happened. You know, why, what are the political and economic and cultural forces that lead to uh, rural change. So at other points, after undergrad, I had sort of, you know, gotten some, you know, I got a degree in history and, and learned some more about these things. And I decided to do some work on, I had I'd done work on farms as a kid, but I started doing more work on sort of local, sustainable, organic farms in Georgia. And, you know, I didn't know that I was going to go back to school. I thought, maybe I'll do this. You know, I, this, uh, I was really interested in that and the possibilities of local sustainable, small scale agriculture. But I soon realized that there's, th- there's a lot of difficulties. There's a lot of barriers to entry as sort of one of the, the formal terms, you know, mm-hmm. um, basically land access, you know, it's difficult if you don't, if, It still takes money to make money, you know, even if you're talking about small scale agriculture, even if you're just talking about a couple of acres, it can be really expensive. So, um, yeah, I realized that wasn't an option for me. And I went back to grad school to study, uh, yeah, barriers to entry. Interesting. Interesting. That's
0: that's actually I have a similar experience. I got my undergrad and went into agriculture um, working on s- small scale, locally owned farms. And, uh, yeah, I had a sim- similar experience here on the West coast. Um, I think it's probably pretty universal in the States, um, and all over the world that that barrier to land ownership or barrier that, uh, you know, having that uh, initial, uh, investment capital to compete with, uh, these large in- agricultural, uh, entities, these big investment firms, these large companies that have, you know, drive prices down, uh, create, you know, huge, try to make the most efficient, you know, agriculture possible, lowering wages, contracting, mechanization, all these things make it really hard to compete as a a small, uh, local, um, you know, sustainable agriculture operation.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it's a pretty common experience, you know, over the past couple of decades, uh, as that sort of movement has grown for and the demand for local and sustainable and organic food has grown and a lot of young folks are interested in it uh, for good reason you know because it it seems to provide a you know uh, you get to work outside you get to potentially you know uh, have some flexibility and not and be your own boss and, um, you know, do something that's meaningful to you. And, you know, and we're also sold this sort of agrarian dream about, you know, how you can work and buy your own homestead and, and provide for yourself and, And, um, and then, you know, the hard reality of it hits a lot of people. And so, yeah, there's some interesting work that people are doing to try to address that, but still a lot of challenges. So that was one of the things that um yeah, led me to think about land ownership and questions of environmental justice more broadly.
0: Great. Yeah, you know, and it's something that I've learned a lot here working in Western Oregon and working for the Coast Range Association over the last couple of years. It's an agricultural issue, and then here in the West, it's a, a forest and, and timbering issue for sure. Um, and when we were mm-hmm. reading your piece, we were kind of like working through, you know, the Green New Deal uh, came out, what was it, 2019, and was a really uh, kind of transformative mo- moment of uh, thinking about the, environment, uh, the climate crisis and uh, just transition. And we were trying to apply that to forests here in Oregon and in industrial Wall Street-owned uh, private forests kind of thinking through like how could uh, these forests contribute to a, a climate solution and we've kind of hitting a wall not really thinking feeling like we were getting to the some of these root causes and part of uh, what your paper or your article in dissent really helped us with is kind of like coming onto this idea of land reform and mm-hmm. you know I, I was hoping you could kind of explain what is land reform maybe in a U.S. context and then in a global context if we, if we want to go there Um, is just, yeah, what is this idea and um, why is it so important for a kind of a a just climate and environmental justice uh, movement for specifically for rural uh, folks?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's, you know, the history of land reform in the U.S. is not really very well known. Um, And of course, you know, a, a term like land reform uh, without getting too deep into the weeds the the term is is kind of loaded in and of itself right um part of this because of a kind of ideological backlash against sort of redistributive efforts largely as part of the cold war right so the term is kind of loaded it can mean lots of different things but for you know our purposes here and for what i was writing about in dissent and is land reform is a is a a kind of politics that recognizes that control over and access to land is central to questions of social and environmental to broader social and environmental issues right and so in the context of the US land reform is largely about recognizing Concentrated the concentration of land ownership and absentee land ownership, and the ways that those things contribute to a host of social and environmental issues. Um, I mean, I think it's also important to point out from the beginning that there are lots of people who have been struggling for control over land in the Americas for a long time, most notably, right, the history of indigenous struggles for land. Um, since colonialism began, right? So so it's important when we, you know, think about this to to recognize that while they, you know, indigenous peoples would actually oftentimes distinguish what they're doing from quote unquote land reform um, because it's a, it's a different kind of politics, but uh, again, just important to highlight the kind of longstanding struggles for, ownership and access and control of land. So what we're talking about um, when we talk about land reform and what I wrote about in this article then is um, this history that's not really that well known about a relatively recent land reform, national land reform movement in the 1970s, which is called the, the National Coalition for Land Reform. And um, I thought it was a really interesting example because, again, partly because of ideological reasons, people don't, you know, Americans don't often recognize that something like this is has existed. You know, we tend to think of land reform as something that happens in the distant past or in, you know, the far away present, right, somewhere like South America or South Asia or or Africa, the global South, but that's not really the case. There actually have been land reform movements in the U.S. recently, um, and and not sort of and, and in a kind of coordinated national way, right? So that's that was one of the really interesting things that sparked me to look into this more. And as I did, I realized, wow, there's a lot of important things here. Um, that are still useful today. So,
0: yeah, that was that blew me away when I was reading your article and like learned about this in the what was it the 70s like you said it was there was a whole uh con- conference on land reform, this big mu- movement it was trying to bring together, you know, conservation folks, rural ag folks. It was it was very it seemed very comprehensive and one of those things is like what happened? Why what why don't we know about this today? Why isn't it as broadly talked about? And uh, you know, what It was, yeah, it seems like for conservation, environmental justice, these types of things like this history would be really important to learn about and to know about. And it was uh, studying it for years and just finding it through your descent article. I was like, wow. Okay. (laughs) Hmm.
1: Yeah. It's really bizarre. You know, I was shocked to find it too. um, Because again, yeah, I, I did a master's in history where I read about U.S. agricultural history, you know, for, for yeah. a couple of years and I'd never heard of this, you yeah. know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are a couple of reasons why I think one is that um, it didn't have a whole lot of impact. You know, they didn't achieve a lot of the policy goals that they had in mind. So um, that is one of the reasons why it's not as well known. Um although again, it was a pretty sustained effort. Um, you know, it lasted for a couple of years. They had a couple of, you know, they had series of publications and conferences and organizing efforts. So it wasn't just a total flash in the pan. Um, so there's still the question of, of why it's not more well known. And again, I think a large part of that is ideological, right. Um, it, that it it's um, it seems to be out of place, right? People assume that it is, you know, that that there's no such thing as a national land reform movement in the U.S., and so nobody has really looked into it. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, you know, that was one of the main goals of the of the paper, and is just to point out that this has existed and um in in a kind of national organized form and um hey we should think more about this and uh and its relevance today
0: yeah yeah and so within once again back to the dissent article you chose to discuss land reform and its connections to the green new deal which i found to be uh, super informative and helpful. Why did you choose? What's the What's the thinking there? Of why is it so important to think about land reform in a climate crisis um, uh, action and environmental justice? What's the What's the connections in the value of land ownership, land reform in a climate crisis context in a just transition uh, narrative that is put forward by the Green New Deal?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I first heard. You know, sort of increasing talk about the Green New Deal. I was excited that it was getting, you know, increasing traction because I think, you know, obviously there's a lot we need to do about the climate crisis, and that um, the Green New Deal as a as a idea has a lot of purchase. I think there's a lot of important things going on there. But I was surprised as I looked into it more that there wasn't a whole lot of specific attention to rural issues and particularly two questions of land ownership and like i said I, I had done a master's in history and was pretty familiar with the original new deal of the 1930s rural questions and particularly the land question was central to the original new deal and i think you know some of its most uh important achievements were in that area and also a part of its political success can be contributed to the fact that it did confront rural issues. So I think there's both an ecological and a political argument for including rural issues and the question of land ownership in particular in the Green New Deal, just as there was in the original New Deal. I mean, first of all, the political point is that we have to overcome the sort of urban-rural divide, right? Um, this is one of the main limits of the left, and particularly of the Democratic Party, um, in my opinion, is that you know they have, in large part, become a urban-centric party, um, and so you have huge swaths of the country that are uh, that feel like their voice is not being heard so and you know for good reason so the the political argument is that in order to address climate change, we have to bring together these urban and rural concerns and these urban and rural constituencies, and the ecological argument is that well <laughs> You can't address about dealing with land ownership. If we're going to do the kinds of things that um, are necessary to to create a renewable energy economy, they're going to necessarily involve uh, changing who has ownership and control and access to land. I mean, the most obvious example of this is the fact that fossil fuel industry has, you know gets sort of massive giveaways from public and indigenous lands in terms of fossil fuel extraction. And that has to change to create a renewable energy economy. There has to be all kinds of infrastructure change as well. Um, So, you know, there are very real political and ecological reasons that we have to think about this.
0: When you're, you know, working, teaching, and talking about um, land ownership, um, land reform, You know, specifically talking about large institutional owners and safe uh, agriculture or other systems, Wall Street investment in land. What is some? What are some of the challenges you have in communicating this, working on these issues, and um, and uh, yeah, uh, educating folks on them?
1: Personally, my experience, I I can talk about a couple of things. One is one of the challenges is just with the research itself, um, is the fact that. Property records are supposed to be public. Property tax records, for instance, are supposed to be public records, but they are incredibly difficult to access and make use of. I think um, your, your organization has has also done some important work on this. You know, if you want to know who owns um, the vast amount of timber, in your county, it's really hard to figure that out. Um, even though there's supposed to be public records that do this, if you want to know how much um, how much land does the coal company own in eastern Kentucky, it's really hard to figure that out. Um, and if you want to figure out how much taxes they're paying, it's even harder. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, and these are things that again are necessary for the most basic kind of democratic process, right? <laughs> um, land ownership creates a lot of power and a lot of political influence. And, um, you know, according to our democratic system, there should also be responsibilities for those with political influence and and um, vast resources. And so understanding land ownership and taxation and these kinds of things, um it's just incredibly murky um in effect it's it's kind of privatized and you know one of the one of the things that's really frustrating about this is i'm doing some research here in virginia now looking at land ownership rates and i I try to get the supposedly public information from the county officials and they they the officials themselves are trying to be helpful but the data that they can provide is not is not very useful it's very difficult to use for a, a host of reasons um, it's yep. incomplete it's this or that um, but if i want but you can buy this same data or actually better data from a private you know a private firm And it's it's much easier to use and much better quality data, much more extensive, et cetera. But it's incredibly expensive, and you have to buy it. It's something like two thousand dollars per county for this data, which is supposed to be public and free. (laughs) uh, You know, so if you want to look into this for whatever reason, um, it's incredibly challenging, just in terms of the data issue. So those that can get the best data are able to do the best analysis, and that's usually those with the most money, right? Like the real estate speculators and the investment firms, etc. So yeah. Um, yeah. that's one, you know, sort of obvious. Yeah,
0: challenge. as uh, similar, you know, we had that same experience here in Western Oregon with um, looking, trying to figure out who owns these private forests, and we had to go county by county. Each in each county has a different. Uh, s- process a different system some charged you know thousands of dollars some it was free it's like completely unstandardized and all the data wasn't standardized either either so putting that together when we finally put together our western oregon uh, industrial forest ownership map you know it was ex- very hard to and it's and it can't be complete because the data is so different across these different counties we had to f- code by um by tax uh address so there's obviously pieces mm-hmm. missing. There's some, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, yeah. And you, you've you actually, there's folks uh, out, out in the Southeast who are doing that in different states. You introduced me to uh, one, uh, some data in Alabama, was it? That uh, showing ownership there. And that was really uh, timber ownership. And that was super informative. Really cool to see like similar uh, work and uh, similar issues happening across the U.S.,
1: yeah, that work that you're uh, talking about, the Alabama forest land ownership project, is really interesting. And I don't know if we maybe we can post links to these things in the show description or show notes. Yeah, we'll we definitely do that. Do
0: that.
1: Yeah, um, for anybody who's interested, it, it, it's it been really helpful to me. I'm glad it was helpful to you. It's a uh, um, yeah. I mean they they did some forest ownership mapping, and they basically said, okay, who owns the most forest land in the state? And they did it by county. Um, you know how many acres do these large firms own? What percent of each county, uh, in terms of uh, you know sort of uh, acreage, is owned by these um, absentee corporate firms? And it's a and they they put together a good website, you know, showing all of this stuff as a kind of public scholarship, public outreach, you know. Um, Again, this should just be public information. Um, You know, you can go to when you go to the grocery store or the uh, gas station, you know, you you see a flyer with people's, uh, you know, mug shots from when they were arrested. (laughs) And that's public information, which arguably, um, you know, shouldn't be necessarily. It's being sold as it's being sold to make profit off of like people's worst day of their life yet you can't get this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, that reveals some of the priorities. Yeah, I mean, so so it's really cool to see that project um, in Alabama. And uh, you know, one of the things that they do is is beyond just showing that um, you know massive amounts of most rural counties, most of Alabama, are owned by absentee firms. They also show that um, there's a as land ownership concentration and absentee ownership increase that quality of life for the residents decreases. So basically, as measured by things like poverty, employment rate, education, food insecurity, all of these kinds of things as you know, so. It's a it's a quantitative study basically, but you know this this builds on a lot of um, social science work showing that um, you know land ownership as it becomes concentrated and controlled by forces farther and farther away, there's less accountability, less uh, sort of local power, and less equality.
0: Great. Well, um, we're going to end part one right there. Thank you, Levi, for uh, uh, this really informative stuff. Folks, um, thanks for tuning in. Tune in uh, to our next episode in a couple of weeks, and we're going to continue the conversation with Levi talking about some of these further uh, challenges and then talking about uh, alternative ownership structures, some ways of thinking into the future of of, um, addressing these uh, land ownership, uh, rural um, land issues. Thanks for tuning in to Coast Change Radio. We'll talk to you next time.